From its humble beginnings in 1928 with Steamboat Willie, the Walt Disney Corporation has grown to gargantuan proportions. Perhaps Disney has won the war of the media conglomerates, but have they won the battle for the soul of our culture? Have they won the battle for the hearts and minds of our children? This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Fantastic to have you here for another week of Signs of the Times Radio. And we have on the blower our regular cultural commentator and film critic, Mark Hadley. How are you, mate? G'day, Ken. It's great to be here. And thanks for having me back on. Yeah, it's, it's good, good to have you here. Now, we're in December, the run-up to Christmas. This does seem to be a, a period where, you know, you, you sort of take the kids out to the movies because what else do you do with them? They're sitting around at home looking at a screen. So, hey, let's take them out and have a look at a bigger screen. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And, in fact, actually, that, that has become a real Australian tradition. Back in the day, you know, Boxing Day was associated with backyard cricket or maybe... You'd pile everybody in the car and you'd go to the nearest beach. Yeah. But the biggest film day in the Australian calendar now is the 26th of December. Yeah, there yeah. Or huge releases will, will, will come out and Australians will spend you know, sometimes as much as four or five times on that day than they might at any other sort of a period of the year. It's, it's incredible. I, I don't know. Well, you, you probably would have noticed this more than me, but it's been my impression that it used to be the case that um, you know, kids' movies were sort of a, a sideline, a, a bit of a sort of B grade in terms of production values and that sort of thing. But, but in the last few decades, it seems like children's media is massive. It's, I mean, some of the biggest blockbusters, some of the most, you know, popular franchises are aimed, you know, fundamentally at, at children or, or even, you know, teenagers. Yeah, there was a shift in the 90s in particular that actually started to see children's films become inclusive films. So if you, you know, if you throw your mind back to the 90s, we're looking at films where children's films were, they were really just very kiddie. Mm. You had the, the whole range of princess films. Even The Lion King itself had something in it for adults, but not much. But then along comes Shrek. Uh, and the first Shrek film really kind of broke the mould because parents were laughing just as much as kids at different jokes. Right. So there were layered jokes, layered audiences. Yep. And I, I guess we think now of the children's film more as a family affair. You know, the really good ones are the ones that everybody wants to go to. And in fact, you know, production companies like Disney and Columbia TriStar and Sony and others have realised that they can earn just as many dollars from upping the production values, as you say, investing more in the script and, and thereby winning, say, a whole other audience to what was, you know, traditionally just a children's market. Yeah. It's amazing to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess in terms of, you know, production values that the animated movies in particular, I mean, you know, Steamboat Willie, you know, <laughs> way, way back yeah. in the day, we've certainly come a long way, you know, from that. We've had some real leaps and bounds, um, I mean, to the point now where, you know, you see something, you're like, is this animated or is this live action? You, you know what I mean? There, there are even Agreed. moments like that now. Agreed. Yeah. In fact, actually, an interesting side point on this, animation has come so far uh, in terms of film that James Dean, you might remember that hmm. actor from the 50s, 60s, 
James, uh, so 60s, James yeah. Dean, um, his family, he died young as an actor, he, his family has now cut a deal for James Dean to appear in a new film yeah. as an animated figure. And as we kind of realised uh, in watching the last Star Wars film, um, just because somebody has passed on doesn't mean they can't continue to appear in films. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is how far animation has taken us. Wow. And, and I guess one of the, the cutting-edge companies uh, that was doing that was, um, was Pixar, which uh, has now been swallowed up by Disney. And uh, you, you point out in, in an article that you wrote for us in, in the December Signs of the Times that Disney has indeed swallowed up a, a lot of competitors and a lot of what I would have said smaller companies, but even some quite large franchises. Yes, and the, the latest acquisition being 20th Century Fox. So you actually now see Disney basically becoming something like the, the Microsoft or the Amazon uh, of the film world. You mm. know, if you can't beat them, buy them you know, is, the, <laughs> yeah. is the mentality. Wow. And Disney has, has cornered the market yeah. on, particularly you mentioned family films, and I, and I go into this to some degree in the article, that family films, the, the new sort of entertainment film, which was always Disney's you know, core market, They've literally gobbled up all of their competitors. So there are others out there, but they're much smaller by half. And now I understand, Mark, that uh, Disney's getting into the streaming market. They're going to be taking on you know, Netflix and, and some of these guys. Yes, and that's going to be an interesting gamble for them. Disney's streaming channel is, uh, is obviously launched, and the, the big the corner product that's sort of anchoring that is The Mandalorian. As I was saying, I think it's a bit of a gamble for Disney, because uh, they're putting a lot in this idea that they can anchor a channel on the access to all of the Marvel films and, and Disney products and plus this new series. So they've been carefully withdrawing the rights to uh, Marvel films and such from you know, other streamers like Netflix and Stan and others. They've been taking those off yeah. uh, and now they're gathering them in one place. And the question is, how often will people, after they finish watching The Mandalorian, how often will people want to pay what it will, in Australia will be about 80 to $90 a year, how much they'll want to pay that to see films they've seen already? It, it, it's going to be interesting. If they don't follow up with something very strong soon, they may find that the success they've experienced in other areas they'll struggle to repeat in the streaming market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess a, a streaming platform is, is a very hungry beast. You've got to keep feeding it fresh content or, it, you know, it very rapidly gets tired. It's, that's a huge challenge absolutely, for them. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think part of the problem, too, is that television executives, various television executives across the planet are trying to save or replicate the free-to-air broadcast model mm. on streaming. So what's the big advantage of, of coming to streaming TV? It's when I've finished watching one episode and I want to watch the next one, I just click and keep watching. That's right. But, yeah, you'll find, uh, though, with The Mandalorian, we're looking at a staggered release uh, of episodes. Mm. Uh, and a lot of other channels have tried to do that too. Stan particularly, and Stan is, has not really succeeded in doing that because when people can watch something else straight away... They don't really care to wait around a week for the next episode. It's a very old school mm. artificial model. Yeah. But Disney's trying to use that to drag people into the channel rather than releasing the series all in one go. 
frankly, I'm not sure it's going to work. It's like trying to put the egg back in the shell after it's been scrambled. (laughs) Wow. I mean, look, all this is just light years away from how, you know, Disney started as a company. You you spend some time in your article talking about, you know, Walt Disney, the the man, the the founder. Can you give us a a bit of a thumbnail sketch of of who he was and what he was all about? I mean, interestingly, Walt Disney was... uh, Walt Disney has become something like more myth than man. Yeah. There's all sorts of crazy stories that are told about Walt Disney. Was he a closet Nazi? Did he fund the Ku Klux Klan? You know, all these mm. sorts of things. And they're all, you know, easily disproved. It's not really the case. It's just things that have grown up around a man. But in short, he and his brother started an animation company based around a single cartoon figure. And that was, of course, the, the classic Steamboat Willie cartoon where we first see uh, Mickey Mouse yeah, turn yeah. up. And he built on the philosophy that people could be what they wanted to be. And hence the be all you can be theme mm. is something that is just very much through all Disney products as part of their culture. It's, it's a very uh, American right dream up. sort of message, isn't it? You know, and anyone who works hard enough and has enough passion, you know, can achieve anything. It's, it's that very sort it. of hyper individualistic message, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, and it fits very much inside of the American culture, and because it, it very much reflected uh, Disney's own experience. Mm. He went bankrupt several times, and, and he finally made it work, and he created, you know, what is it today, you know, the largest film empire on earth. And, you know, of course, he hasn't been part of, of the really big steps in the last few years, but he set the train running, so to speak. Mm. And it was already huge by the time he had, um, you know, uh, shoveled off this mortal coil. But the interesting thing that I think that people don't know much about Disney is that he actually was a very spiritual man. Okay. So he came, he came from a congregationalist background. Mm. He was deep in going to church and reading his Bible. I, I want to be careful how I read into this, mainly because he also had you know other challenges to his personality. He was a uh, a perfectionist, a workaholic. You know, he had struggles uh, because of that with his marriage and, and with his family. But at the same time, you can't ignore the fact that when he talks about in his successes in his biographies, he constantly refers to the fact that this is something that, that is being gained under God, that this is something that he's very thankful to the Lord for. When he opened the first Disneyland, he, he had a congregationalist minister come and dedicate it. You know, that was the idea that it was something he was achieving, not separate of his faith. So I find a really strange thing going on here. On the one hand, you've got all that American idealism we were talking about, like the American dream, be all you can be. If you work hard enough, you can make it. But he puts it under an umbrella that we belong to someone else, Mm. that it's not like being all we can be means being free of, of any connection or responsibility or, in fact, relationship with the, with the creator. And I think that was, uh, that, that's hard for us to take on because it's kind of a nuanced worldview. It's not, it's not just all American dream or all Christianity. It's a man who has actually been trying to integrate different parts of his life together and in his way follow God. Again, no one knows, you or I or anyone, exactly where he stood with God personally and ultimately but I think it's funny that in this day and age, Disney itself has become a, a company that's very much about championing 
the be-all-you-can-be side mm. of Disney's character without actually acknowledging in any way the uh, we belong to someone. Yeah, the, the punchline in, in a lot of... Or the, or the turning point in a lot of Disney productions seems to be, you know, look within your heart. The answer is within you. You know, if you believe in, if you just believe in yourself enough, you can accomplish your dreams. Yeah, yeah you know, you know what I mean. It's yeah, very sort of yeah. salvation by self. You know, the answer is within you, rather than looking externally. And I guess that's a, a very strong message. You know, within our culture generally, so it, it does resonate with us. Yeah, exactly. And so you have. Like key characters, whether it be whether it be right back at the beginning with Pinocchio saying, "I want to be a real boy," and and that's what's that's what's actually going to drive him mm. all the way through to Brave with Nerida saying, you know, that her destiny, her some people believe that their their fate is outside of themselves, but I believe my fate is within me, and I can find it mm. and, and do it as opposed to you know forces directing my my future, I'm going to direct it myself. And it's very seductive because we want to believe that ultimately in a bad situation, well, if we just knuckle down, we will actually be able to triumph. And I think it happens because we've confused something. We confuse not being in control with being helpless. Right. So, I mean, if you think about it, you know, we say to ourselves, oh, I can't do something about it. I can't do something about this. I'm helpless. But that's not exactly true. That's a cultural mistake because there are lots of people throughout history who have concluded they can't do something about this but have still believed that they have help. And so uh, the, the entire Christian culture, uh, the, the entire Bible settles around the fact that though we may not be in control, we are not without hope Yeah, uh, that we actually have uh, as, by virtue of someone who is greater than us, who is actually in control, in charge, we're not helpless. But instead, the modern, the modern uh, rejection of the idea of, of not taking your, control of your life is, is the idea that if you don't do it, well, then you're somehow giving up responsibility and, and just falling into the clutches of whoever will manipulate you. That's yeah. not, the, not the case at all. Yeah, and, and I guess we do have to admit, though, that if we look at, you know, if we ask, you know, just about anyone, who is the person who most influenced your life, you know, who is the person you most respect, who you really look up to, often they will say, my parents, you know, and, and, and that will often be followed by, you know, we didn't grow up very rich, my parents worked hard, you know, they did what they had to do, you know, I was, you know my mum was a single mum, she worked two jobs to bring, you know, whatever it is, you know, here are these parents of people who are stuck in some sense, who have no control over their life circumstances, and but it's what they did with with that situation that we find inspirational. You know the fact that they faced those difficulties with you know with true grit, with determination, with love for their family. Even though it's not an aspirational story, it's still something that we do admire at a, a very deep level. I think. Yeah, I feel like that there is there's always been, and particularly in the Australian character too. And this is what we share with the Americans. There's always been this sense that you can either just Sit down and, and let the world wash over you, or you can pick yourself up, as, as, my, as my father often used to say, to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps yeah. and, and get going, you know. And that is uh, something that we can admire. In fact, you'll even find roots of that in the Bible itself. 
in Proverbs, you'll actually have advice given to the person who is just going to sit on their own hands, so to speak, and do nothing. Yeah. You know, the proverb says to this, go to the ant, O sluggard. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to be that sort of lazy person, take the ant's example. You can actually do something by hard labor. You can prepare for the future. You can deal with your problems. But the problem is, is that we often look at that philosophy of, you know, you can do something yourself in isolation, as if somehow it was separate from you have a father above you who, who cares for you and who's as concerned about your life more so than you are, who you can appeal to if mm. you would like to do so. And that's the, I think that's the problem with Disney as, as it stands now. So Disney's philosophy has moved from Walt's sort of more nuanced concept of I'm going to work hard, but everything I owe, I owe very much to what I've learned through my congregational upbringing. And they've moved just to I'm going to work very, very hard. Mm. And somehow working very, very hard and relying on someone else were mutually exclusive. But I think a wise person is a person who does, does both, yeah. who works very, very hard and realizes what they can and can't control and looks to him who can you know, for those things they can't. Okay. Well, well let, let's let, let's explore these these ideas via the case study that you took us through in in the article, Mark. You you looked at one of probably Pixar's premier, maybe maybe the most popular Pixar set of movies ever, and that, that's the Toy Story movies, which I was very happy that you uh, you focused on because <laughs> the, the the first couple especially, I just really loved. So full of the incredible, you know, one liners. You know, I may not be a smart dog, but I know what roadkill is. You know, <laughs> all these. You know, I'm a married spud. I'm a married spud. You know, <laughs> there's all all these classic one liners from you know the main characters, the side characters, an incredible ensemble cast there. But but I did notice the third movie got very. That was the last one I saw. The third movie got very very dark. I thought, oh goodness me, this is all, all a bit depressing. And, and I was surprised when they brought out a fourth one early this year. But but I, I was actually complaining to my kids the other day. I said, why did you grow up? I said because I used to watch all the animated movies with you, and now I, I missed out on not just Toy Story four. I missed out on Zootopia. I missed out on that one with the inflatable large friend <laughs> you know, oh, oh, oh you mean big hero six big hero six yeah mi- missed out on so many animated movies because my you know because my kids grew up so <laughs> Ken, Ken, you've just got to come to the movies with me <laughs> okay <laughs> so we'll, we'll go watch them together look you're absolutely right and i think part of your disappointment too though that you're hinting at is that the arc of mm. toy story which stretches over decades you know, the first film coming out in 1995 has, has subtly changed, mm. that we've, we've moved away from. So the initial idea, as I, was, I say in the article, and people can, can follow it up in more detail, but I'll just sketch it in quickly. Yeah. The, the, the idea I was basically saying is if you have a look at Toy Story in 1995, the most important thing about the toys universe is that they belong to someone. And so Woody's, when Woody gets lost... You know, uh, when, they're, when they're not going to be able to be with the move and, they'll, and Buzz and him have to find their way back in time so they can be part of the moves, that is the key problem for, for Woody. I'm lost. Andy's gone. They're going to move into their house yeah. in two days. And, and the blame and the fight between the, the two of them has the fact that they will lose their connection with who they belong to. Yeah. So and, Andy, Andy's the kid they belong to, and, and Andy is just effectively the, the god of the world. He's their reason for existence, their reason for living and they just, Absolutely. They just cannot it's wait for him to come to into point. the room and, and play with them. This is the ultimate experience for a toy. Yeah, right down to the point that when we finally get to the second film in 1999, 
what is um, Woody's ultimate argument as to why he has to get back. You know, at this stage, he's been, you know, snaffled by a collector and is probably going to be sold to, to a, someone else in Japan. That's right, uh, His yes. ultimate argument is not, if, if I can go on and I can stay clean and, and unbroken forever. Yes. He lifts up his boot, and on the bottom of his boot is the word Andy. Mm. You know, that, that's who I belong to. This is who I am. You know, I, I'm part of my identity is the fact that I actually belong to someone else. Mm. And, and that's, I guess, from a Christian perspective, I always loved that sort of storyline because there's Woody and Buzz and the rest of the gang doing incredible things, as you say, striving really hard, achieving great goals, but in the context of still being owned. And mm. they don't feel less because of that. It's not like they're walking around going, oh, you know, isn't it a terrible thing that we're owned? Well, Actually, their joy. Well, and in, in, in fact, the, the very first movie, Buzz Lightyear, comes along not recognising, you know, you are a toy! You know, he, <laughs> he, he has to have this hammered into his head. He thinks he's a real space ranger. But he through that very first movie, he comes to discover the, the joy and, and the beauty of being a toy. And, and this is his role. This is what he was made for. This is what he was created for. And when, you know, Andy plays with him and, and the other toys, it's like, ah, you know, the light opens wow you know this this sudden discovery but but as the movies progress you see some sort of different themes coming i mean i remember the second movie that absolutely heartbreaking song that the the cowgirl character jesse sings you know and the the sort of about the girl who used to own the her girl who used to own her who, who left her behind and it's such a it's a heartbreaking moment it's a real tearjerker that song and it and so in some senses it's like well yeah you can be owned by a by a kid it's the most wonderful thing ever but what happens when the kid grows up what happens if the kid is neglectful what happens if you get lost you know well it's it's horrific and suddenly these sort of doubts start to be introduced don't they yeah by 2010 we've come along to to toy story 3 and as you say it's something of a dark film because we're dealing with end of life issues Mm. 2010 so our owners have grown up and he's going off to college you know and there's this really interesting you know this is for your really sharp listeners. Yeah. But there's this really interesting religious sort of dichotomy that gets placed into the film because Andy and the gang are facing two choices. Mm. They're going to go up into the attic and there's this point in which they say, yeah, we could always hang around with the, the Christmas decorations. They're fun guys, aren't they? And it's kind of like, mm, I don't know, they're kind of boring. <laughs> or they go down to the furnace. So there's, a, there's almost a, a, a thumbnail sketch of heaven or a thumbnail sketch of hell. Here we are at the end of our usefulness. Andy doesn't need us anymore, and we're either going to go up or we're going to go down. And neither of them are, are things that they want. And so we start to see a, a bit of what was actually happening in society, pushing into children's films, this, this slow rejection of, of Christian heritage and, and religion, and no, neither up nor down mm. seems to be uh, anything that anybody wants. And... So they come up with a third option, which is, let's just stay here forever, which is a very, you know, 20th or 21st century approach. Mm. Why don't we let the party keep going instead of actually acknowledging that one day it'll come to an end? Yeah, a a complete Uh, denial of our mortality. Yeah, absolutely. And so they find this sort of immortality in just continuing to, to belong to somebody else and to play and belong to somebody else to play. But, you know, honestly, that can't go on forever. And by the fourth film, they've realized that. 
and so we there was there's this moment in the third film where you know Lotso, you might remember the sort of like strawberry smelling bear who's actually the the evil nemesis. Yeah, he, he's um, he's the villain. Yes. Yeah. yeah, he's the villain. Lotso says no owners means no worries. We don't need owners at Sunnyside, which is where they sort of end up the children's play centre. We own ourselves. We're masters at our own destiny. Now he's the villain. No owners means no worries. That's that's his line. And we're supposed to go, oh, no, hang on. What about Andy? What about, you know, uh, everybody else? What about this relationship? Mm. We're supposed to reject that. That's right. What, what about my purpose a, as a toy? Yeah. Yeah. But by the fourth film, Woody, Woody is the one who is actually saying, you know, no owners is my next step. Wow. So what was the villain's line in the third film is now the hero's line in the fourth. We've come to the point where way back in the beginning of the arc, back in 1995, being owned was a great thing. By the time we come to Toy Story 4, Woody has come to the conclusion that he's done his time and now it's time to own himself Mm -hmm. uh, and to go off and and to enjoy those things that, that he really should have a right to. It is a very strange world. So now we have toys and we have to, and it almost breaks the, the whole myth of Toy Story from beginning to end, because we have to believe now in toys that go off and live their own lives without and, and pursue their own ambitions without any reference to belonging to anyone. Mm. Uh, in, and, in, and in some ways, uh, it's sort of, I guess I see it as healthy, because if you're a kid who's growing up watching these, well, you maybe get into the stage once you see the fourth one of actually considering your independence and thinking, oh, I'm going to have to move out of home at some point and start to look after myself. And, and in that sense of growing maturity, it's quite healthy. But, but you, you see uh, a, a deeper cultural message there, don't you? Yeah, I do, because you see, the, the big thing that we have to remember about children's films, and here's the clue that'll break it all open for you. Yeah. Children's films are not written by children. Yeah. They're written by adults. So often what is happening is the messages that adults are telling kids are ones that they're working through themselves or that they're reflecting from their own cultural upbringing. And so the greatest message the the scriptwriters of Toy Story 4 want to leave with a child is you don't have to belong to anyone to be happy, which was a world away from 1995's belonging to someone is part of your happiness. Mm. And, and so that, that for me, yes, there's, there's maturity angles in there that we can keep in mind and we're no trouble with that, but it's the distance that we've traveled now and the fact that it reflects what's actually going on in the world, that the last thing anybody would consider freedom now is the idea of also being in a relationship with someone who is in control, as wow. if we couldn't be free in that context. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's why I find it challenging and why I hope to heaven that they don't do a Toy Story 5, because who knows what's next. <laughs> but it, it, we've really come to a point now where I feel... As parents, as, you know, significant others in, in young kids' lives, we've actually got to pay a bit of attention to the, the storyline that comes along with the fun. And I know a lot of parents, every time I do talking at events and I'm, uh, you know, asked to be a guest speaker or something like that somewhere, uh, there's always a parent in the audience who will say, how do I do this? How do I do this? Yeah. And, and I guess I, I, I want to say, use as many resources as you can. There are things like Signs of Science. There are other websites and, and, and in fact, you know, the radio show itself 
uh, that will help you think these things through prior to finding yourself in the cinema and feeling a little bit uncomfortable about what was just said mm. by the hero mm. on the screen. Yeah, but I mean, at the very least, you know, talk to your kids about it. Say, you know, that actually made me feel uncomfortable because blah, 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 blah. You know, what, what do you think? Well, at least you, yeah, can, hey, you can unpack can it with I your kids. Can I give you, okay, so it's 30 years of reviewing films. Can I give you the three things I say to my kids straight after a film? Great, yeah, reckon, please. Great. One parent to another, you've only got pretty much five minutes before they flick onto something else. You know, they're talking about something else. <laughs> yep. Ask them what did they like. What did they like about it? Often you want to tell them what you like, but stop. Yep. Uh, find out what it was that impacted them. You might realize that the thing you're worried about doesn't worry them at all. Mm-hmm. But after that, ask them, what was that about? And initially they'll start by telling you the story, but as they get into the habit of it, they'll go, you know, I think it was about and I'll give you a deeper answer, and that's fantastic. You know, I've got a, a six-year-old who is, in fact, actually telling me great insights, which I then write down for articles and sell to other people. But, <laughs> you know, but the last one is, do you agree? Mm. You know, do, you, do you agree? I mean, make them engage at the point of does it matter to them or doesn't it? And you might find, again, it didn't impact on them, and it's not a worry, so you don't have to worry. But there are other times when they'll start and they'll say to themselves, what you're actually doing is you're taking a media product and you're saying to them, hey, son, hey, daughter, or hey, grandson, whatever, Mm. granddaughter, that you are not just turning your mind off here. You're hearing someone's view of the world. Do you agree? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. So, yeah, so Mark, Mark has really given us a, a challenge this week. You know, if, if the true purpose of a toy is to be played with, if the true purpose of a toy is to bring pleasure to its owner, what is the true purpose of a human being? Thanks so much for, uh, for making us think this week, Mark Hadley. Always happy, mate. You guys have a great Christmas. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. 